Last week, uh, Julian uh, preached out of uh, Mark chapter 3 and talked about uh, Satan and spiritual realities. Well, we pick up on that this Sunday uh, out of Mark chapter 5. And really what I want to focus in on is, is just helping us to get a sense that spiritual realities are real. Uh, and, you know, when, when we come across things that... Uh, we aren't sure if real, if they're real, or what, our cynical mind says, well, we won't believe it until we see pigs fly. Uh, well, let's take a look at this passage uh, and see how we respond to it in the situation when pigs don't fly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us insight into your word, help us to understand the spiritual realities that are before us. Uh, and help us to live in light of them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. From 1984 to uh, around 2002, I was uh, the director of a camp, actually called the superintendent of it, on the New Jersey shore, uh, about two blocks from the beach in Wildwood, New Jersey. Actually, it was called the Children's Fresh Air Home. It wasn't so much a camp as it was a home, uh, we had 32 rooms, uh, 60 beds, 72 windows in this facility. We would host about 200 children a summer, all kids from the inner city. Uh, four groups a summer, about 40 kids in each group. And our goal was to give them a really good Christian home environment, to uh, give them the opportunity to learn how to make their beds, uh, which many of them didn't know how to do, or or have good table manners. And each day we'd start out with devotions. Uh, after dinner, we would go on the playground and then close with devotions uh, outside. Uh, you know, come in and, and have time of singing uh, and a message. Two boys, uh, Aaron and Paul, uh, came one summer, 10 years old and nine years old. Uh, they were brothers from the Camden, New Jersey area. And they... Uh, Paul, in particular, just has such a hard time of interacting with other children. Uh, he, he was just constantly on the timeout bench. Uh, he would just go up to other kids and just hit them, just whack them in the face. Uh, and totally defiant to the counselors over and over and over again. Uh, and, and so this one night, I was... Um, talking with him. He was out on the playground and, and just going from problem to problem. And I was talking to him by the swings. Uh, and uh, the activity director came out and said, hey, everyone, it's time to come in for devotions. So I said to Paul, well, Paul, let's just drop this. Let's go in uh, for devotions. And he said, I'm not going. And I said, well, yes, you are, because uh, we're all going in to learn about Jesus. And he says to me, I hate Jesus. I'm not going in. And I said, well, Paul, you don't hate Jesus. Uh, where's that coming from? Actually a little afraid to know what he was going to answer. <laughs> and he, he said, I hate Jesus and I'm going to kill you. Nine-year-old boy, I, you know, I looked him over to see if he had any weapons. You know, you never know what a nine-year-old might be carrying in his pocket. 
And I decided to go spiritual on him. I said, Paul, you can't kill me because Jesus lives in me and he's promised that I will live forever. And the boy gets even more intense and says to me, if I kill you, then I kill Jesus who is in you. And I thought, that's not bad logic for a nine-year-old. <laughs> this wasn't going anywhere. Everyone else was inside at this point. So I said, well, let, Paul, let's just, let's just go sit on the step for a second and, and calm down. And, and so we're sitting there. I'm towards the house. He's towards the playground on these steps. He's looking out over the playground. And I, I, just, I just decided, I'm going to pray for this boy. I didn't bow my head. I didn't fold my hands. I didn't close my eyes. I said no words at all. I prayed in my heart, Lord, bless this boy. And as soon as I started to pray, this boy who was not looking at me, looking out over the playground, turns his head to me and says, stop praying. Well, I kept praying. <laughs> and he said it again. Stop praying. I thought, oh, my goodness. Um, so I, I said, Paul, let, let's go inside. So we went into the, the parlor. It was like a living room area, really long room, 30 feet long or so. I put him there with a counselor. And I, at this point, I said, he just has to go home because of the way he's interacting with other kids. And I, I, I call his mom and say, you know, I... Didn't tell her that I thought her son was demon-possessed, but I, he said, you know, he has to come, you have to come, he's having problems with other kids, and she said, sure, I'll be there, you know, in an hour or so. So I go back into this parlor, this, this living room area, he's sitting there, and he's fine, just reading a book with, with one of the counselors. I walk to the other end of the parlor and sit down with our 70-year-old cook, uh, Ruth Wartloff. She's one of... Uh, she was from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. She was married to a pastor. And I just sit down next to her very quietly and say, Ruth, you know in the Bible when, when they talk about demons and demon possession and all that kind of stuff, do you believe that? She said, Chris, if it's in the book, I believe it. So I you know, began to share with her what happened outside. And she says to me, Chris, let's, let's just pray. We don't bow our heads. We don't uh, fold our hands. She begins to pray very quietly and gently. Anybody who would have seen us just thought we were still talking to each other. 30 feet away, that boy shouts out, stop praying. An hour later, his mom comes and takes him away, I'm like, have fun with your demon-possessed son. Uh, I was actually kind of relieved about what, you know, that, that he had left the, the house at that point. Ruth said, if it's in the book, I believe it. It's hard to believe, isn't it? When we read stories like this in Mark chapter Five, an event like this in our text this morning. And yet there it is, Mark chapter 5, this the, the most disturbing story probably in Scripture involving an individual. This pathetic man 
repulsive, often having to wear chains because he's so violent. Uh, this, this man who, uh, he's cutting himself with stones. Just picture that. Just destroying his own body. Violent in nature. Luke, in his parallel story, tells us that he lived nakedly. He would expose himself to everyone who passed by. He was a sexual pervert. I suspect he didn't shave. He probably didn't bathe. You can imagine the foul smell that came off of this person. He yelled out. He cried out in torment in the middle of the night because of what was going on, the agony within him. You could imagine how terrified every single person in this community was of him as he had this superhuman strength to pull off uh, uh, break free of chains that, that once bound him. And Mark goes on to tell us the source of all of this trouble for this man. It was demons. It was an evil spirit or evil spirits. If it's in the book, I believe it, Mrs. Wortloth said. I did a quick search uh, on Friday. of uh, I wanted to see words in the Bible that address spiritual realities. And after I reached 2,000 different places, different words that were used throughout scripture, I just decided to stop at that point. Words like heaven and hell, words like uh, angels and demons and seraphim and cherubim, uh, uh, spirit and soul, devil, Satan, and on and on. If it's in the book, you should believe it. Do you believe it? Well, we have to admit it. It's actually kind of, it's easy not to. It's easy not to take these realities to heart and think they're true. Or even if we do, to not really give much attention to it because they seem like they don't have very much impact on us. Heaven or hell uh, we can't see them, and they certainly don't seem like they have any impact or influence on your life right now. We can't see her spirit. We can't touch her spirit. We, we can't measure it. And for the most part, you know, you and I, we'll have maybe one or two experiences in our lives like I did with Paul, where it, this, a situation arises where it can only be described as coming from spiritual origins. And it seems like it's, it's so inexplicable that, well, maybe just for a moment, your mind opens up to the possibility of angelic and demonic intervention. But just then, like a few moments later, you're like, ah, nah, probably not. Day to day, the spiritual world just seems so far removed from our lives. And, you know, I, I, I think we're more open to uh, the reality of a living God. Uh, we're open to the reality of the work of Christ and, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Maybe even the authenticity of, of angels. I mean, you're here, right? So if you weren't open to them, you wouldn't be here. But when it comes to Satan and demonic activities and the impact of spiritual powers that are destructive, we're far less certain of the truths to which scripture testifies. And I, I wonder why is that the case? 
Why are we so less open to the realities of spiritual darkness? Some of it may be confusion uh, from the way in which we understand Scripture itself. Because when you look at the Old Testament at first glance, it it seems like there's very little reference to demonic activity. We find, you know, you find a spirit that troubles Saul in 1 Samuel. You find another spirit that influences King Ahab in uh, 1 Kings 22. Of course, we read about the serpent uh, in the garden and Satan's attack on Job. Uh, A few other references like we just read in Isaiah 14 in prophetic statements about uh, the background of Satan and uh, his, his world. We're told a couple places in God's law that we, uh, Israel should not participate in occult practices. But there's only four places uh, in the Old Testament where a word is translated as demon. When we hear about judgment in the Old Testament, it's always about judgment of the nations. Very rarely do you see a statement where it's judgment about uh, forces, spiritual forces of of darkness. And when you think about the Bible, two-thirds of it is the Old Testament. And there just seems to be scant reference to the influence of destructive spiritual powers. But then you turn to the New Testament, and it seems like Jesus on every corner is confronting a demon. Like, where'd that come from? And, you know, in our, our modern minds, we say, well, you know, that's just the way they ex- explain mental illness or disease or something. But if you look at the stories around Jesus's healings, there are clear distinctions between those who are sick and those who are demon-possessed. They were not confused about what was actually Going on. So, what are we to make of this seemingly thin witness in the Old Testament about the powers and presence of darkness? Actually, it's not thin at all, it's as thick as it can be. You could start in Deuteronomy 32 9. Uh, in that, it says, For the Lord's portion is his people Jacob. Jacob, Israel, is his inheritance, it says. And and that statement in Deuteronomy 32 is actually in reference to Genesis 10 and 11, where the nations are divided. The Tower of Babel, where that, that awful situation happens of rebellion against God, and God divides the nations. This is a statement that applies to that context. And And the Lord says, uh, Moses says in this context, for the Lord's portion is Israel. God inherits Israel. Well, who inherits all of the other nations? Who do all the other nations belong to if God only claims Israel? Revelation 18 helps us to understand that. It says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great tower of Babel, Babylon, right? 
Listen, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wines of her adultery. Babylon and all of the nations have become a haunt, a dwelling place for demons. Israel becomes the Lord's portion, his inheritance from Genesis 12, when Abraham calls him to be a unique people, to go to a land, a land that's carved out, a land that would be the Lord's inheritance with his people. And well, what happens to everyone else? Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. God disinherits everyone else from his presence. And he gives them over to the powers and principalities of darkness. And that is why Jesus calls Satan in John 12 and John 14. He says, Satan is the ruler. He's the ruler of this world. And that's actually attested throughout the Old Testament. How is it? It's attested through idolatry in idols. And, you know, when we think of idols, we just usually think of wood and stone, and they certainly aren't real. That piece, that is, there's, that's fake. But brothers and sisters, there were spiritual realities that lay behind the worship of these pieces of stone and would. Psalm 106 in the uh, ESV 36 and 37 says they worshiped their idols, which became a snare for them. Listen, it says they sacrificed their son and daughters to what? To demons. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, the sacrifice of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participating with demons, he says. What was going on in the Old Testament? The focus of the Old Testament was on Israel. And Israel was the Lord's portion. He dwelt in their midst. There was no other spiritual powers that were present among his people. So you don't read about demonic activity in the land of Israel during this time period. Demonic activity and control, it rested in all the other lands outside of Israel, manifested through idolatry. You look at ancient Near East texts and you're going to read all kinds of crazy things about demonic stuff happening outside of Israel. And that's what is so tragic about what happens to the people of Israel as they begin to embrace idolatry. They're inviting the powers of darkness to invade and overrun the people uh, and the land apportioned to the Lord. Just the opposite was supposed to happen, right? They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, uh, to a land, lands that were blanketed in darkness. Israel was to be a blessing to the nations rather than the nations bringing the cruel, cursed spiritual realities that oppressed those nations. And eventually, God had enough of it. He said, look, you want to be subjected to the powers that Babylon is subjected to? Well, just fine. Great. And he sent 
the Babylonian army under Nebuchadnezzar to overrun Jerusalem, ransack the temple, send his people into exile, remove his presence from his people, just like he did in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. So we then open up the Gospels and we read of the land of Israel. And what do we see now? We see the land overrun with demons. Of course it were. The Lord wasn't present anymore. It was controlled by the powers of darkness, like all the nations were. Even the religious leaders, Jesus says, your father is Satan. What's Jesus' first words in Mark? The kingdom of God is at hand. That's not just a simple statement of, of spiritual realities coming to earthly, earthly realities or the kingdom of God coming against the kingdom of man. No, this is, this is two spiritual realities, a kingdom against another kingdom of spiritual power, spiritual kingdoms. The conquest was now unfolding upon Jesus' presence to reclaim the people, to reclaim his land, to reclaim the nations, to renew the heavens and the earth. That's why Matthew and Mark and Luke, what's the first story they tell about Jesus' ministry? It's a confrontation with Satan in the wilderness. What's the fourth temptation that's extended to Jesus? Satan offers Jesus the opportunity to do what? To rule over the nations. If he would just bow down and offer Satan his allegiance. Satan, he wasn't making it up. He had control. He had authority over the nations of the world. And all of this then gives us the context to understand the passage that we're looking at in Mark 5. What's going on in this event? We've already witnessed Jesus interacting with uh, uh, demons. Where? In Israel. But this event is an excursion of the kingdom of God into enemy territory. This area, Gerasenes, was outside the land of Israel. It was, on the, it was outside the promised land. It was on the other side of the Jordan River. It was, uh, it was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This man was part of the nation's who embraced idolatry. He was a Gentile. He was a non-Jew. Everything about him was an anathema to God's covenant with his people. He was wholly unclean because he was a Gentile. He was unclean because he was living among uh, the tombs. Uh, he, he was unclean because of his sexual perversion, his nakedness. He was... Uh, he. he he was, uh, came against God's law with his violent uh, activity towards other people. He lived in a land surrounded by pigs that were understood in the covenant as unclean. Everything about him. And by the way, unclean. Like, what's that even about? 
What, what were the things that were unclean? Things were unclean. They were uh, dead bodies. Unclean things, according to uh, the Mosaic law, were birds of prey that feasted on dead carcasses. They were animals that crawled on the ground like the serpent would crawl on the ground. It, they were like scavenger pigs that would just eat anything, no matter how foul or how gross it might be. Discharges from the body, disease on the skin, marred the body. All of these things were unclean. What did they all have in common? They were things that were associated with death and suffering and evil and sin and disorder. They were contrary to anything that was life-giving and goodness and holy and, and pure. All, that, all those things were ceremonially identified as unclean to drive home the hope and the expectation of God's work on behalf of his people and the kingdom of God. But behind this man was true impurity. Here was the manifestation of evil, an unclean spirit, well, actually spirits. He's called legion, a Roman word. What does that mean? It's a Roman word of a, a group, an army, a, a big battalion, a unit of thousands of military personnel. And in this case, a demonic army. This, this is a military confrontation between the kingdom of God and the powers of darkness and the principalities who rule this world. And this poor man is at ground zero. Why does Mark tell this story? What, what does he want to convey in this, out of this conflict to us? Well, the first thing he's driving home as we read through this story, he does not want you to miss the power of the, the kingdom of darkness. It is so strong. It is real. He rips off chains. No one can, can, can thwart this man, subdue this man. He, the demons go into the pigs, 2,000, and they all just go and plunge. The power of the darkness is real. And he wants you to know the power is destructive. He cuts himself because of the demonic presence, wanting to kill himself. The pigs go in. They, they can swim. They can't fly, but they can swim. They drown themselves to be free of what was impacting them. The power of darkness to destroy is real. Peter says that Satan is like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. Do you believe that? It's in the book. But more than that, he wants us, Mark wants us to come to grips with the reality of the superlative power of Jesus Christ, his authority. Verse 6 tells us when he, when this man saw Jesus from a distance, 
the demon-possessed man ran and fell on his knees in front of him. You picture that? This man who no one could subdue just at the sight of Jesus Christ falls at his feet powerless, pleading, begging that Jesus would not judge them. The kingdom of God was at hand. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and in the demonic realms under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what Mark wants you to know. There's so much more in this passage to talk about. So many things to apply and consider about spiritual realities. But I want you to take away one truth from this message. We live in a world that's driven by spiritual realities. As complex as your life is, as complex as this world is, so too is the complexity of the unseen realm. It, it's all unfolding together. It all has impact on us. Jesus knew it. This man knew it. The demons know it. Read Revelation from chapter 1 to 21, where the veil of the unseen realm is pulled back and you can get a full glimpse of what's going on. The apostle John knew it. Paul knew it. He says in Ephesians 6, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's in the book, so you should believe it. And if you do believe this, how should you respond? First thing I'd say is pray. One of the favorite things that, I, that our uh, senior minister, uh, Gordon Hugenberger, used to say he used to say, the one thing that will surprise us the most when we get to heaven is how little we prayed. Prayer is our primary means to be involved in this spiritual conflict in the unseen realms. You know, I could have talked to that little boy Paul until I was blue in the face, but it was when I prayed that whatever was going on in him took notice. Stop praying. That's what they want you to do. If you're not praying, you're sitting on the sidelines of this war. Chapter 5 of Revelation, the elders who were there bow down before the lamb who holds the scroll in his hands, and they're holding a bowl. And do you know what's in that bowl? 
It's the prayer of the saints. And when they offer it, that's when the scroll is open and the seals are broken. Revelation chapter 8, the same thing happens. Uh, a, a censer of incense is waved and those incense are made out of the prayers of the people, it says. And then the judgment of the trumpets happen. And then the th third set of judgments, it, what are they? It, it's the golden bowl judgments. What does that go back to? The bowls of incense of God's people's prayers in Revelation 5. Do you view your prayer life from this perspective? Are you involved in this battle through prayer? Thinking it from that perspective, would you be a person who would pray with greater ferocity? Because it's in the book and you should believe it. I, another thing you can do in terms of application is begin to instill greater importance in the choices that you're making based on the spiritual realities, which are evident in Scripture. Colossians 3 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And listen, why? Because he says those things are idolatry. They're idolatry. They're, they're the same things that were involved in the nations as they were overpowered by the powers of darkness. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Every time you look at pornography... It is not just a choice of the flesh. You're choosing sides. It's, it involves spiritual realities just as idolatry did in the Old Testament. It's a big deal. Don't do that. Be on the Lord's side. Be on the right side of the battle. Or how about this? Every time you go over that line with your spouse where you get so angry, it's not just an argument about you and that person, your husband, your wife. It's not just between the two of you. Paul says you are opening up a foothold for Satan. That's a choice you need to make. The way you treat and respond to your spouse. How about this? We are about to hire a new senior minister. And guess what? We're going to have to, that's great. We're going to hire somebody. But then we're going to have to make all kinds of decisions about who we are going to be in the direction of our church. And there's strong opinions out here. I know there are. Here's what we should do. How are you going to posture yourself when a brother or sister has a different opinion about the way in which we should move forward? Are you going to consider others better than yourself? Are you going to look to their interests rather than your own first? Because you know what? Satan loves the proud. Jesus emptied himself 
became a servant. What side are you going? The choices that you make really matter. They really do. They put you on one side of the war or the other. And the final thing I want to say, I want to remind you of the pitiful state of this demon-possessed man. Could there have been a man who seemed further away from God, a man with less hope, a man totally incapable of changing his life, enslaved, broken, greater despair, greater agony, and maybe for some reason you identify with this man this morning. Maybe you are where you are because of your own sin. Maybe you are where you are because of your life circumstances. Or maybe you are where you are because of indeed spiritual attack. Maybe you feel like you're too far away to be reached. That there's no hope. I want you to look at this man and do not lose hope. Because this story, it's, it's more than just a cosmic spiritual battle unfolding, which has relevance for your life. It, it's actually about a tender savior who's moved with compassion for you and wants to enter into the scene and make things right again in your life. And it all starts when? When that man goes before the feet of Jesus and kneels down and acknowledges Jesus as the son of the most high. And that's where it all starts for you too. You're not out of reach. Jesus wants to make it right in your life. Kneel before him Acknowledge him as your savior. How would your life change if you began to live your life from, these, from the perspective of these spiritual realities? Would your life look like, well, would it become more passionate for Christ, more compassionate for those who do not know him and live under the power of the dark forces. Paul says that your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's in the book. You really should believe it. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that whatever scales might be on our eyes, that you would pull them back. Lord, I, we actually thank you for maybe not revealing everything because it might be too, too much for us even to handle, right now at least. But Lord, make us sensitive to that which we should understand and help us to live by it until you come back upon the clouds, renewing this heaven and earth and judging the powers and the principalities of evil and those who have expressed their allegiance to him. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.